Um, good afternoon. Um, we're at time. I think a few people may still be rolling in. Um, but uh, we want to get started on this panel on refugee entrepreneurship. And um, we've got a panelist of three women, um, each working from different sectors within refugee entrepreneurship. Uh, we've got Joelle from the front lines. Um, we've got Myrna from more of a the venture philanthropy backed um, for social enterprises in refugee camps. And we've got Sandra joining us from Switzerland. Um, and Sandra's with um, the World Food Program and she'll give us more of the um, multilateral agency viewpoint on this landscape. Um, so if we can each uh, introduce ourselves first and then we'll keep it up. Thank you so much. Um, I'm so happy and delighted to be here today. Um, it's really an honor for me to be here. My name is Joel Hangi uh, from Remo uh, Republic Democratic of Congo. Uh, current, currently I'm living in Kenya, a refugee in Kenya. I fled my country in 2014 and I have an organization in Kakuma in the northwestern western of Kenya uh, focusing much on, on young talented youth um, in the camp and see how we can use our own stories through arts and tell the world about who we are. So that's what I'm, I'm doing, and I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, hello, I am Mirna Atalla, and I'm the executive director of Alfanar. Uh, Alfanar is the Arab region's first venture philanthropy organization. Um, how we connect into the refugee entrepreneurship story is that essentially we are social investors. Um, and for 15 years, we've been looking at and looking for ambitious um, social enterprises, specifically working in education and women's economic empowerment. Um, and when we began work in Lebanon, uh, we found that actually 25% of the population is refugee-based, at least in the last seven year period and so when we began to look for investments we wanted since we do want to serve the most vulnerable to look for um, investments social enterprises that either benefit refugees directly or are led by refugees and that's what brings me to the conversation and i too am very happy to be here thanks Hi, I'm Sandra. Uh, I, um, I work for the Google Programs Innovation Accelerator. We're based in Munich. And I, before joining WFT, I was a business designer, so working mostly on customer experience. But since, uh, since then, at the World Food Program, we, especially the Innovation Accelerator, we identify and support um, internal teams of WFT and external startups that are working on um, innovations or technologies that could support our operations, uh, which is humanitarian response, emergencies, and uh, hunger relief, um, and we support them with spring program funding and acceleration. Uh, through my role, also, I was uh, previously based in Lebanon and in Iraq, and I run also a program called Empath, which is a digital skills training and um, connection to work. Uh, program for uh, conflict-affected communities, refugees, and the communities hosting them. 
and currently the program is running in Lebanon, Iraq, and uh, Kenya, and now scaling to Central America and also um, the Philippines. Great, thank you. So um, to get us started, um, I wanted to ask you, Joelle, about your experience um, in terms of like giving us a current landscape of what's happening um, in, in Kakuma, or um, you left DRC in 2014, and you have done um, so much with telling stories and reclaiming the narrative of what a refugee story looks like and what um, the day-to-day like livelihoods of refugees look like and our theme for this panel it's on refugee entrepreneurship but it's more on um, today's camps and tomorrow's cities so um, can you speak more about the what does the, the current landscape look like well thank you so much um, maybe what I can share about uh, maybe refugees uh, and our organization uh, we started that uh, initiative because we find out that uh, our stories uh, have been used. Uh, people have been telling our stories and in different ways, probably in the ways that we are not comfortable with, and you know, uh, give like portraying us in more vulnerable ways. And at some point, maybe we can't be comfortable with it with time. So we were like, maybe we should use. Um, what we have to tell our own stories, to tell the world that uh, who we are, uh, and and for us, uh, being a refugee is just a situation which really doesn't define our identity. And and like, the majority of people, maybe outside the world, who have never got a chance to to like interact with refugees and try to understand who they are. They, they, they don't have a clear picture of who is a refugee. And for us, we're like, let us find out how ways to tell our own stories. Despite all the challenges that we are facing, we are going through, uh, like all the, the troubles and trauma that we have, we can still use our talent, we can still use what we have in our hand to tell people who we are. And we are still really convinced that we have uh, a space uh, in this world to change the entire world because we are just normal, normal people. And, and coming to entrepreneurship, I think it's one way to like to use. Uh, it's a tool that we can use to to like build a space or a platform where people can just come in and learn more about refugees. And for me, uh, like the private sector part of it, it's a uh, it's something like it's it's an entity that plays an important role. Uh, in advancing social economic development of both refugees and ho uh, the host countries uh, as well as the the host uh, the host community so uh, we understand that this um, extreme poverty that refugee community are living in it's something that can't be really resolved by the humanitarian intervention alone because uh, most this has been meant to be usually uh, temporary responses at first place uh, but looking at our experience and our life uh, as a refugee and this protracted displacement in the camp it's something that needs more than that we really need long-term solution, and uh, this, uh, I think the private se sector can come in, and I mean the, the entrepreneurs, and try to explore some of the possibility. And I think uh, it's 
the private sector also can also change the lives of, of refugees by enhancing uh, the creation of job opportunity because some of us has uh, we have skill sets but we are not allowed to work uh, because of rules and regulations so this their presence in the in the camps is something that can really uh, change life of many people and you can't imagine and i wish the world could imagine how much resources they're wasting in the like just trying to to ignore people who are living in in, in refugee settings and and their intervention it can really uh, change uh, like help us to reclaim our dignity and give us uh, a space, a valuable space in the community. And there is uh, another way that uh, I think the critical way that the private sector can use uh, to support refugees at large and, and uh, entrepreneurs in, in particular is to figure out different structure to nature refugees initiatives. And, and uh, some of these, like by trying to cooperate and work together with with refugees and extend the delivery of their products and services in the camp and some of their products can be the, the backbone of refugees uh, enterprises and help us refugees to design our own solution design products that can meet uh, let me say uh, local and, and international standard like the products that can really fill the, the need of the customers and their preferences. Uh, and for me, this is the right time for entrepreneurs in, uh, and investors to step in into this game and try to uh, explore some of the opportunity on how to to increase their income generating and how to build a really impact in the camp. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, um, Joel. I, um, you mentioned about the economic value of, um, like of refugees and um, the opportunities it brings to the host countries. Um, like I was born in a refugee camp in Nepal, and my parents had ended up in that refugee camp 50 years ago. And like you mentioned, um, when you're a refugee, uh, you don't have the legal documentation to get proper jobs, so you end up having to hustle and be out in the streets to make your own jobs. Um, you either, if you can't get hired, then you better start selling something or be of use. And so, like that really touched me. And but, like I wanted to ask Mirna, like as a venture-backed, um, like as a venture philanthropy fund. Um, how are you guys bringing in more of like financial services so that um, like people like my parents, you know, they did a small textile business in Nepal, and um, like it, it did really well for the host country, and it was enough to send us to school. And I'm here in Oxford now, um, but like, how can we create better systems, like financial systems, so that these things don't happen by accident or by luck? Um, yeah, how can we better proof this? Um, through venture philanthropies? Um, well, congratulations first. I mean, I think your parents must be extremely proud and um, also your own enterprise is really quite fascinating. <laughs> Maybe in the questions you could talk about it. But um, I think uh, what motivated me into this space, venture philanthropy, was watching uh, years and years of lots of development aid do many 
good and feel-good projects and initiatives that would um, sort of die or their impact would die when the funding would die. Um, and I was really encouraged to move into the social enterprise space um, and to really work to galvanize financing and provide technical assistance to entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs that were trying to make a, a difference in the lives of vulnerable people, but had a revenue generating model at the essence. And our focus entirely is to take philanthropy, so to take our donors' generous money and say, okay, we're going to take a risk here before the development agencies necessarily are motivated to come um, and come in and seed or help grow um, ambitious social enterprises, not only to grow their impact, because impact is obviously, we're not just an entrepreneurship play, we are a social enterprise play, um, but to do it in a financially sustainable way such that when we exit, they are either recovering the majority of costs and thus dependent a little bit less on um, outside funding or grant funding, they might be breaking even, in which case their, their revenue model is working, or they may be investor-ready, impact investor-ready. And so we're playing this role in the in-between, um, not really at the startup you know, prize stage, but really in the loss space of the 150,000 to 500,000 before you're ready for the impact investment to make sure that all the systems are in place to attract that investment. So that's all lovely big, big birds, but um, maybe I should just give an example of um, how our role can help, you know, pave the way for others and, and actually create impact. So our first um, investment in refugee entrepreneurship, which was our second investment in Lebanon, um, was actually in a refugee camp, which is full, you know, is grew its uh, population in one kilometer squared from 15,000 to 30,000 people all on top of each other and was really, you know, is, is benefiting from lots of um, UN support because it is a Palestinian refugee camp. There's an agency dedicated to it. And when we were doing our, our um, you know, tours of ambitious organizations, it was very hard with refugee-led organizations because they're so used to donor-driven agendas and, and, and proposals, and they'd say, well, what are you looking for? Oh, are you looking for microfinance? Are you looking for preschools? We can do that. We can do women's empowerment. As opposed to, <laughs> this is our dream, you know, or this is what the people in the camp are really asking for. And we found one particular entrepreneur who very openly said, I don't cook. <laughs> but the women who um, I work with have all said, we love cooking, and we'd love to professionalize this. It gives us flexibility to take care of our children and also do, you know, also bring in income. Would it be possible to see the catering business? And it was the first person we spoke to who said, this is actually my idea. And she's a very capable manager. We did the due diligence, and so we decided to run with the first investment. And the majority of what we do is grants and then eventually zero interest loans when cash flow is more um, reliable to serve as a disciplinary tool to get them ready for other types of investment. Uh, and I mean, now, <laughs> eight years on, because we're not, it's not one time. I mean, this type of investment takes a very long time and a lot of management support. But uh, the catering business is successful keeping aside the Lebanese context, which is really complicated right now. But we, within one year, she was recovering costs. The catering business itself 
it's, it's a lumpy seasonal business. And so in order to smooth out that cash flow, we added in the, in the long-term investment a food truck. Um, a, a beautiful film was made about it by Susan Sarandon. We had the very great fortune of having a documentary. If anybody wants to see it, it's called Sufra, S-O-U-F-R-A. The filmmaker also produced a cookbook on top of it that then generates income, goes right back into um, the catering business and the food truck. On top of it, we then seeded microloans um, within the camp, so those are for women who aren't necessarily working inside um, the Sufra catering business, but want to set up their own businesses. And quite amazingly, uh, they have now set up a preschool um, on the back of that investment, which um, is 20% of the women who are working at Sufra actually send their children into the preschool. And so they now have a reliable place to um, send their children uh, to go to school. So, I mean, I'm sure we can get into a lot more sort of details about what we can do and how we can do, but at a very basis, we need, um, and we have other investments that, that span the gamut, but um, we need to ask people and encourage them, you know, to step up. But then not everybody's an entrepreneur, that's okay. Um, but we need to make financing and flexible patient um, capital available to those entrepreneurs who, who then serve as models for others. Because once the humanitarian piece is over, markets emerge in the most unlikely places. And we need to be ready with the flexible risk capital to be able to encourage that so people can step, stand on their feet. Um, yes, with, so you talked about the risk factors and um, as a like, as an impact investor, um, you guys have to take on a lot of risk. So, with the whole humanitarian landscape, um, like, I feel like we've sort of kind of alluded to the UN and the UN's role in NICS being such a big player in this, yeah. but um, it also kind of has a rep of sort of being outdated and being like really big and bulky. So, um, sorry, Sandra, <laughs> I don't mean to. <laughs> so, yeah, we want to hear more about like, your work in, uh, within World Food Program and the Innovation Center, the innovation activities you're leading within um, so that this rep can ch change within the UN and we can actually use this like, big organization that is well-recognized like, all over the world. Um, how can it uh, be of more, um, like how can it be more innovative for um, the next decade? Yes, of course. I mean, um, the UN recognizes internally also that uh, it, it's time also to change. This is why in the last five years, you've seen every major agency have some form of innovation incubator, accelerator, innovation fund between UNICEF, UNDP, the World Food Program, uh, I don't want to brag that we were the first ones there, but oh, everyone, sort of every major UN agency or program uh, is recognizing the limits of um, of grant of, uh, of our own operation, and um, and also like the UN was created for a very specific purpose, but because of crises and because of how long and protracted um, uh, they've become, uh, like 
It was never supposed to be a replacement for governments or a replacement for functioning systems locally, and yet now this is where we find ourselves um, uh, operating in. And in terms of your, the role of the UN, it's really to bring together people like Nina and Joel and, uh, and work a little bit more on sort of the government levels and, and the policy levels to, to create, first of all, a space for option A, which is for refugees to return home whenever possible, because this is really when when uh, thinking about about what goes into someone's survival, uh, the loss of your home is, I mean, I, I, I cannot really speak on behalf of refugees, but what you've seen and, and how it is, it's, you also lose your network, you also lose your familiarity, you also lose the systems you're used to. And of course, it, it, like the, the loss of safety and all of those other topics culminate into, into a very unusual situation. And I think the world, with time has gotten so much used to refugee, uh, to the concept of refugee that we now think of it as a, sort of a, a normal phenomenon, and it's really an abnormal phenomenon. And when it's um, and when uh, the Convention of Refugee Rights was created, refugees are supposed to be able to integrate with the communities that host them. They're supposed to have the right to work. They're supposed to have the right to education, the access to financial systems, healthcare. And to integrate, to be integrated into the communities that receive them. And yet, we've seen so much post governance be, um, uh, be um, reticent in, in, in sort of integrating properly refugees. And you see examples where refugees have been integrated, let's say, if you look at Rwanda, where the entire country thrives because refugees bring so much richness to the country. So, from our perspective, the UN, at least as I can, I can speak specifically only for the World Food Program's Innovation Accelerator, I can't even speak for the World Food Program in general, but what we're trying to do is really trying to create a platform for us to really think about these big topics, but also trying to support smaller, uh, smaller initiatives that have really the potential to scale, the potential to change the way we do food delivery, the way we do humanitarian assistance, the way people have access to financial systems, the digital identity, uh, supply chain, all of those big topics are topics that we're um, exploring, experimenting with, and trying to also give uh, not only the, um, uh, the financial space to experiment, but also pushing back then inwards into our own policies, trying to look at our own system, the way we work with governments, and trying to see how can we uh, move closer to, towards a more sustainable, more long-term impact. Um, and everything that, um, it's very hard to change organizations like the UN, uh, different, depending also on the agency, some of them are even more bureaucratic than others, um, but it's definitely, like, everyone's also moving in that direction. Uh, and, and depending on the agency, some, for example, UNICEF is really more interested in the funding aspects of the innovation funding, um, from the World Food Program, we're really there to try to support the implementation as well, to try to support also the thinking. Similarly to, um, to what Nina uh, does in, in sort of uh, trying to identify entrepreneurs or trying to support the work of entrepreneurs, we do that at a little bit of a larger scale. Um, and we try to also match those entrepreneurs or those businesses, those startups, to actual governments or to actual countries or to our own business units so that um, they push us to innovate and they push us to move uh, into the light, if I can use that term. Thanks, Sandra. 
Um, so you've talked about, yeah, it's not normal to hear stories about forced migration. Um, like every time I listen to NPR or BBC, um, the top four out of ten at least will be about some tension going on with, um, with migrants around the world. Um, in the last month and more, um, the tension in Turkey and Greece has been like, occupying a lot of airwaves if coronavirus is not taking up that airwave already. Um, but there's a lot of growing tension. And like, so I'm here in the MBA because my agribusiness in Nepal um, had to be, we had to curtail our work because of um, bilateral relations changing in, um, in South Asia. And so these are political realities we face, like even if it's for internally displaced people or refugees outside of their borders. Um, there's so much ch shifting with climate change, um, this turn towards a more um, nationalistic wave around the world. Um, so like this is a question for three of you. Um, the, what do you foresee as like trends in um, the future for forced migration? And what do we have to do to, whether it's like preparing even better financial services or whether it's um, signing more agreements, not that that's gonna help much, um, but what can we do? Like in this day and age, like there's so much talk about space and frontier development and um, AI, machine learning, like all of these exciting technologies but how can we actually deploy these, or like, how can we deploy all, any kind of possibility out there um, f for the future trends of forced migration, and so that communities can bounce back faster and better if they are put in such situations? Any three of you? Yeah. To, to respond to that question, uh, as a refugee and with all my experience uh, living in, in hosting country, I think it's it's better for like to talk to the host uh, government because they're really playing a lot coming to all the rules and regulations that we we have to, to follow, and there are somehow uh, barriers that we are facing when it comes to development, investment, and all those things. But as a, an entrepreneur and a consumer at the same time, have witnessed over the years how gradually uh, government have been a little bit flexible uh, with, with refugee and, and trying to figure out how they can be inclusive in coming to regulations and rules and apply the same thing, uh, like the same uh, rules to the way they do for, for their citizens. And it's something that really it's helped the host countries uh, a lot. And have just discovered that uh, over the years they've been doing something quite wrong. And, and, but on the, on the other hand, we're still having other, other, organiz uh, other countries that are not really able to, to understand that. And they're still having those uh, rules. I, I, I think on my hand, we have really to like the private sector or the entrepreneurs have to work hand in hand with government to figure out how they can 
work on the rules and the regulations so that they can have access to refugee camps and give them equal opportunity, like the same they can give to, to the hosting uh, community as well. So I think that is one thing that can really help coming to, yeah, to that aspect. Um, I think maybe I'm a little bit, um, uh, f the frame of my mind is based on the last conversation about the marketing. Um, but So I don't have any grandiose uh, suggestions except that I do think we need to make a concerted effort to highlight some of the, the more positive stories about refugee contribution to business to um, the countries that they are forced to settle in or, you know, I mean, it's not dissimilar and you can't fault people in a host community for necessarily having a difficulty to deal with um, and the influx of new people, especially if that host community is, uh, is poor and has its own issues and problems. But um, learning how to tap into it as a source of innovation um, does require us to sort of change our, our thinking, but we, we need stories, we need to understand, we need to point to and find that sort of inspiration um, in order to sort of change public opinion, because if public opinion begins to change, it might, might possibly become a little bit easier for policymakers and for those people who are on the advocacy side of things not necessarily on the entrepreneurship side of things, to have a stronger standing, um, an argument, you know, to, to make. Um, and that comes from cases of, of entrepreneurs, it comes from cases of good investments, where the money is actually returned, and it also, you know, comes at a larger scale um, level where possibly, you know, countries that are a little bit, uh, have had some success in integrating or or passing more beneficial policies can serve as examples for those countries that are a little bit more reticent. I'd like to open it up to the floor. I don't think I need a mic. Oh, uh, just so uh, Sandra can hear it too. Yeah, okay, just for you Sandra. So uh, look, um, I think you know, it's really important that we you know, remain grounded you know, uh, when we have these conversations. Um, there's no point talking about, you know, uh, the trends of, uh, you know, how this thing is going to evolve. I guarantee that nobody can predict it, right? I think what I really picked up from this conversation is, you know, what are those real stories? You know, what are those, um, what are those inspirational refugee entrepreneurship that you guys have seen in the camps, in your eight years of, you know, uh, going after... Uh, so those stories need to be repeated. They, they need to be amplified. Right? I, I don't think in a, in a typical refugee camp, you know, I mean, you're right. Uh, they're always going to look at, you know, what's your agenda? We'll figure out a way to support you. They're not going to be coming with, you know, tens of ideas of, you know. So what do we first do to tell them, right? What do we tell them to inspire them before we can expect to tell us about their great ideas? Because the, the way they're living, um, you know, it's, it's not going to happen to them nationally, right? But what I would really like to ask is, you know, what are some of those inspirational stories that you guys have come across?
Okay, I'll start. Um, so besides Mariam and the food truck, uh, and uh, you know, th this is one truly inspirational story. But it's it's small. It's quite focused. Um, we have an investment, for example, in an online um, Arabic now other languages learning platform, which was not was set up by a Lebanese person who wanted to improve her Arabic. Um, and decided she wanted to benefit uh, refugees in turn. She set up natakallam.com, which means we can speak. And so for every, and, and basically it pairs language learners worldwide with, at the beginning, Syrian refugees. And you pay $15 per hour and 10 goes straight to the refugee and five covers the cost. And now she's moved into Spanish and Persian and. Uh, and other, uh, you know, languages, but at the heart of it is that um, a refugee could also bypass some of the complicated payment structures because they were paid through, through um, you know, they were basically employed online by what was at, at the start a, a B Corp or a 501c3, I think, uh, in the U.S. So, I mean... This was a very simple model, but um, it's it's in it's ensured, I mean, really transformative income for you know hundreds of, of refugees who can now pay for their you know uh, it's flexible. They can pay for their apartment. They can have a dignified way of engaging. And sometimes when I speak to the refugees who work on the platform, what they say is it also means we have this other family. We are connected with other people. We can tell our story otherwise, but we're still working in a dignified way. Um, she's also grown to translation, etc. So, I mean, this is really one beautiful story. On, on a separate topic, I mean, interestingly, we invested in an entrepreneur that is uh, resolving an inefficiency in the secondhand clothing market in Lebanon, where there wasn't sort of a natural place to give away clothes. I mean, people were giving it away either directly to the camps and then you have a pile of clothes there and then you just have to pick, but you don't know, does it fit you? Does it fit your son or your daughter? Um, or you give it to an NGO that isn't specialized in it. And uh, this organization, Fabricade, found tons, tons of clothes sitting in warehouses for XYZ NGO just rotting away and began to buy off of the NGOs that weren't reselling them, and then cleaning, uh, preparing, and sorting them in order to be resold at pop-up shops next to refugee camps. So we did a, a pilot investment, and now they're in long-term investment, so they could get a, a you know a pickup truck and have their warehouse better, you know, equipped. They now serve where they went from six thousand to ten thousand customers. Within uh, the first year of our investment, we're helping them set up four permanent shops. And when you walk into the shop, I mean, it's not, it's not unique for us in, if we're sitting here in the West to go into a thrift shop. But it is a big deal to be able to walk into a shop. Nothing is more than 3,000 Lebanese pounds, so $2. Well, what was $2? Um, you, know, uh, you know that this is for boys uh, 6 to 8 years old. And if I find $1 pair of jeans, and I am a Syrian refugee, and I need to work in the valley in a farm, you know, that is a big deal. And so, I mean, these are the types of stories that really... Um, excite and, and and to Sandra's point, I mean the private sector and when there's money to be made, 
will hopefully drive things to open up because, you know, uh, on its own, the, the government is quite reticent to allow refugees to work and to, to interact and to transact with dignity and, and freely. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, maybe what I can add uh, on, on our site, it's a little bit different, our model of working, because basically we are just refugees, like kind of doing peer-to-peer -peer supports. So what we, we normally do is to, like trying to organize event and exhibition and, and call people, like invite people and come and see what we're doing. So in that way, we hope that uh, people, like outside people can really understand uh, what uh, refugees are doing and what they're able to do. And, and also, we are trying also to, to see how we can connect refugees uh, to maybe local artists or international, probably, hopefully, uh, artists, and, and try to, to expand uh, their markets and, and to be known uh, as, and recognized as artists uh, internationally, nationally and internationally. So that's what we are doing, basically, on ground. And it's not easy, because most of the time when you want to, to make a step ahead, uh, just people come, government, and they're like, you're not allowed to do this, who are you? You're like, oh my god, I can't, you know, it's, it's really hard, but we, we are really trying hard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if I can, first of all, may I ask, for the person who asked the question, uh, have you ever been in a refugee camp, or do you come from environment where you visited anything like that? Um, yeah, so no, I have um, I have got many invitations, but I have, I have decided never to visit one because, you know, I'm doing a, a, a small, uh, you know, a startup uh, which uh, believes that, you know, in order for the startup to scale, uh, it has to be done completely digitally. So I have been in touch with the Kakuma refugee camp for the last 14 months. Um, and uh, I understand what's going on over there in a very deep way. I work with five of their refugees. Um, and, and I know the reality of what's really happening over there. And I find mostly there is, there is some kind of, I mean, sorry for being a little blunt, but there is always some circus going on. You know, there is this queen of Belgium visiting then there is this uh, Japanese, uh, you know, singer going over there. Uh, you know, see, you need, see, Kakuma is like the fashion parade of, you know, all refugee camps in the world. You know, that's, that's how I, I mean, it's really hard for me to compare and contrast all camps. But I just feel that uh, there's a lot of things going on, but I, as, a, as, a, as somebody who's sort of, you know, working in the commercial sector, I find it extremely, uh, difficult to digest that kind of a thing because there is no economic incentive in in many of these activities, right? There is a broader awareness, there is a broader uh, you know push and etc etc. But what I've noticed is there is really no result. You know, of all those things that happen, there is really nothing happening. You know, maybe there is something happening in the back and I don't really know about it. But I continue to push my people that I work with. Guys, you need to really figure out you know how you start. You know, figuring out how you become an entrepreneur. Do not just, you know, trust that some people will come and, you know, drop great ideas and, you know, money and... So, so it's, it's that. So that's, that's where this experience comes from, Sandro. Yeah, okay, that point. I think, uh, yeah, I think, of course, like with refugees, you have different 
uh, not everybody comes from the same areas, not everyone comes with the same background. Uh, and sometimes, uh, like, uh, like what we know, to point earlier, some refugees don't, are not interested in becoming entrepreneurs. It's similar as you guys, some of you are really looking for like a long-term job, you want to be an employee in a really thriving organization, and you want, really don't want to be an entrepreneur. And some of them, of course, in this entrepreneurship forum, are really excited about the idea of entrepreneur. But it's not something that happens overnight. You need a lot of network, and you need a huge network to become an entrepreneur. And the sort of, like I would say, like it's just, it's not a small feat, and every refugee, in my opinion, manages to become an entrepreneur and, be, and is able to galvanize their tiny group of people is has done a mammoth effort in, in, in comparison to the, to, the, to the circumstances that they're living in. Uh, in terms of examples uh, from our side, um, so there's, um, in, in the borders between Chad and Algeria, there's a, a refugee camp in the middle of the desert um, that uh, is hosting, it's been there for 40 years, it's called the Sarabi refugee camp, and it hosts the Sarabi people who are nomadic, um, um, nomadic people who rely on grazing animals and sort of they cross borders uh, in the Sahara Desert. And recently, uh, we've, um, one of the refugees there, Zin Talib, he uh, was an engineer uh, back in, at some point before he became a refugee. And he uh, uh, came across hydroponics as a, as a technology, and he tried to, um, to, to, to get a high-tech unit to uh, grow fodder, or to grow, first of all, they didn't start with fodder, they started with um, uh, fresh leafy greens. For anyone who's not uh, familiar, hydroponics is a technology of agriculture that relies very, on very little water, and you put some artificial lights and and uh, nutrients, artificial, like um, you, people put the nutrients in versus the nutrients coming from the soil. Uh, but eventually, uh, they um, continued to iterate, and this is sort of where we came into contact with him and gave him an initial grant funding to test a low-tech um, hydroponic um, solution. And since then, they've turned this into something that uh, they're grazing animals can feed on, so that first of all, they do not have to cross borders or uh, get into any conflict, and also because they depend on their grazing animals for milk, for cheese. So the entire community in the Sarajevo refugee camp, since then, in the last three years, have become able to either the women grow their own hydroponic units and they uh, feed their own animals and they sell the surplus, or um, um, yeah, so those are the two things. Either they sell their own surplus and then they make cheese, and from the cheese they also sell it in the markets in the refugee camp. So it created this entire microeconomy. Uh, and sort of one thing where, sort of to our earlier question of how we from the World Food Program can support something like this or can play, is like this kind of idea where uh, we're using fodder to feed the animals who in turn with their milk can feed people and improve their nutrition by 250%. It's like really huge kind of uh, impact on their nutrition value, but also their sense of confidence. So we're trying to now replicate this model in, any, in other communities that have the same kind of community of refugees that used to be, for example, if you look at the refugees that fled from Darfur or the Darfur crisis, it was overgrazing land. So if there was a technology like this, or if there was a, um, something like this back in the day, the entire crisis might have not happened. So uh, not to be idealistic in that sense, but just to say that there is, like taking, um, 
from, from, from where we operate, it's really operating at, at this level of scale, of trying to see what works in one refugee camp for one type of community, what were the factors that made it work, and how can we do it anywhere. Now our hydroponics project is scaling into 21 countries, so from, you know, the, from Chad to going into, like, into Namibia, into Mozambique, into Jordan, so we're really trying to uh, scale this across the different countries where you can find uh, refugees that have that kind of, um, or host communities also that may find it benefit. And I think that this is really a change that uh, the private sector also, and when you think about the private sector and the design culture that comes with the private sector has introduced the World Food Programs work, it's really looking at people as people instead of you know one, one size fits all. It's very easy when you're doing humanitarian assistance because you drop the same tent and regardless of regardless of, uh, of the human being, they could use it or the bag of rice. But when you're starting to think about entrepreneurship or long-term support or development, they really have to cater to different human beings and, and design programs for them that work for them. So if it's entrepreneurship, it's great. And if it's not, uh, if it's entrepreneurship in a different sense, then also great. And also, it's it's entrepreneurs that would then become employers of other people. It's also okay, like this entrepreneurship comes in very different forms. And yeah, from our side, we are working to try to support it as much as possible. Yeah, um, I'd also like to add um, to what um, the three of the panelists mentioned that. Um, in addition to all of this, um, it's not just a one-year or two-year or three-year commitment. It's decades and decades long of commitment. Um, like I mentioned, my community have been we've been refugees for the last 50 to 60 years, and um, a lot of the seeds that you sow within refugee camps um, it shows up. Maybe not in this generation, but at least in the late, later generations, it definitely does show up. And like I've seen this with my experience with like the quarter million Bhutanese refugees in Nepal, and um, like, it, it's a long-term payment. And um, sorry, you, you had a question. Hi, um, Neil Angley from the European Space Agency. As you may imagine, my experience in refugees is very uh, limited to none. Um, but there was the question on how are you going in terms of uh, future technologies and uh, space was mentioned. Um, just wanted to, to make all of you aware that from the European Space Agency, we are co-funding any activities that make use of, uh, of space assets or space data. It, we are not just doing satellites, but also promoting the use of those satellites. And some, some of our programs and activities have already been working with, uh, with refugees. So I welcome anyone that has a, a bright idea, whether it's on, on digital identity, on using Earth observation to uh, forecast crop, crop failures or, or disasters. You are more than welcome to come and talk to us in the, in the hall. And then I had a small question because uh, during the, the whole panel, I think IDPs were mentioned once. Um, do you make this distinction in the private sector between IDPs and refugees? And if so, is there any barriers in terms of um, policies or laws that uh, make you go more for refugees rather than IDPs in the private sector? Sure. Um, uh, thank you for your very important work and for being open to collaborating and for the question. 
uh, we, we, we don't make a distinction. We were looking for bright ideas and social enterprises that can get through due diligence <laughs> um, and pass the risk analysis. And so uh, currently, I, I would say in terms of our investment, particularly like we've looked a little bit at Iraq where there's high, high numbers of IDPs. We haven't been able to move into to Syria. We're, we're quite niche and small. Um, there is, uh, it's not forced displacement, but in Egypt where we work, there's lots of movement, um, and, and we're, we're sort of blind to that. The issue is, of course, you know, um, legislation and making sure that any sort of enterprise or venture, and this is just the, the nature of who we are, would make sense, you know, uh, from an investment perspective. So we, we are not... Um, maybe making the distinction, but we also haven't seen so many. Um, we haven't been operating, A, in the countries probably where there's a greater number of them, and we haven't received um, pitches. But, um, so, yeah, sorry, hope that answers. Thank you for a great panel and a great discussion. Um, Joelle, I just wanted to ask you quite a simple question. Um, you're an entrepreneur, your husband's an entrepreneur in Kakuma. You know lots of the most successful entrepreneurs in Kakuma. What is it, from your perspective, that makes some refugee entrepreneurs in Kakuma successful and others less successful? Is it personality? Is it education? Is it luck? Um, is it a chance meeting with an investor? Do external actors matter? Um, you've got an impact investor, a UN agency. Frankly, from what you see, is it entrepreneurs' connections with outsiders that matter, or is it other factors that are most important? What, what's explaining successful entrepreneurship in Kakuma from what you see in your everyday experience? Thank you so much for, for your question. Uh, I really like it. <laughs> Basically, from my experience, and as you said, with my husband, who is also an entrepreneur, on the other hand, uh, I can say, um, first of all, it's exposure. You know, most of the time, refugees are not uh, having connection with outside, and it's really hard for you to build network with people and explore some of the possibilities on how to, to leverage your, your product or, you, you know, your initiative. So that is one thing. And, and the other thing is, like, it's really hard for people to figure out uh, which way to use to get connected to other people. And, and one way that I've used, maybe I can, I can tell, is through my, my education. Because most of the time, I did my, my, my education in the camp online. And, and most of the time, people could come and visit, and they want to know what is going on. And because you have that entrepreneurship spirit, you, you always tended to share, the, share with them what you're doing and how you're doing, what, what are the, the possibilities of expanding what you're doing. And people are really, uh, so apart from this, we can, also able, we can also be able to do this. So this is one thing that helped us and helped me a lot. And because we don't have, in general, Kakuma, Kakuma and other refugee camps, they don't have that exposure. They, they really don't know what is going on. And this is due to that restriction of movement. You're not allowed to go outside. You're not allowed. And, and most of the time, even those who have to go in the refugee camps, there is so many kind of rules that are applied to the sense that even if they have that chance, 
to get to refugee camps, they can't really have the time to explore and talk to refugees easily because, you know, there is an eye of, of, of maybe agencies and other people looking at you and trying to figure out where, what you want to tell refugees. And they're like, um, maybe if you want to explore some of the possibilities, fine. Can you talk to us and figure out how to do this? At the end, there is nothing going on. So we're just uh, trying to maximize every opportunity that we can get and, and make sure that you can Teach a little bit about uh, what you're doing, how you're doing it, uh, which is not maybe common. It's, it's it's really maybe somehow a chance, and it's it's uh, it's really hard. That's why most of like number of entrepreneurs in refugee camps can be seen like, like they seem to be fail and not really achieve what they're doing. Not because they they are not entrepreneurs, not because they don't they don't have a a good model of doing their own things, but because they don't have an exposure, because they, they, there is not uh, there is no that uh, supporting system that can help them to to drive their their idea and be successful in the future. Yeah. I I just want to add to one point because I think it's really true. I mean, there, there's a fine balance between, like, in our portfolio, on a quarterly basis, we bring all of the investees together to learn from one another because chances are they've faced an obstacle before that they can solve quite quickly between one another. And there's no distinction between the refugee investments and the Lebanese investments. On the contrary, we want to bring them together. Um, but one thing that we did is one part of our investment cycle is to take... Uh, the investees to a, a developing world context once a year uh, to meet social enterprises that have reached scale or sustainability. And we took, for example, Mariam to Bangladesh to see what Brock was doing and what the UNIS Center was doing. I mean, it was nearly impossible to get her a visa as a Palestinian refugee, but it was explosive because she has spent her life in the city within a city you know, and she is, to her great credit, a backable chief executive and got through due diligence, et cetera, which is unique and an amazing thing. But to then be able to, to give her the opportunity not only to just connect through her business and through the network with other entrepreneurs, but also globally to others doing things at scale sustainably, it, it's magical, actually. Um, and it, it really kind of transforms that sense of opportunity. Um, and at least it gives another frame of reference for those entrepreneurs. Yeah, I mean, if I can add also something to, to uh, what you're saying here now, it's, it's no different than other entrepreneurs outside. Like any entrepreneur from you, if you are able to design and scale your uh, enterprise, in a, in, you cannot do it in isolation. You have to do it by, first of all, having access to other people and also not underestimating the level of of knowledge you bring into it from your interactions, from your network, from what you've seen on when you were buying your coffee or when you're sitting in the cafe being inspired by something else. And it's very hard to recreate this sort of microcosm kind of interaction in, in, in refugee camps that are designed to be a temporary solution, yet they continue to be like 96% of refugees never return home. And it's really there where now it has to Sort of come, we're seeing more activity in trying to bring in entrepreneurship programs to, to sort of refugees. Of course, there's a lot that still needs to happen, but it's, it's definitely 
Um, if, you're, if you have an entrepreneurship spirit, but you don't, you would be able to take advantage of some opportunity, but you need something that is more external. Thank you. Uh, sorry, we're at time, but if you can make it really quick. Sorry. I have a quick one for you, actually, just for you. So, you know, you've been given the best exposure that one can actually on. You're in the middle of Oxford. You know pretty much all the digital, physical. So, according to Joel, you know, exposure is the most important thing, and I completely agree with that. Uh, but, but you, having got all of these great exposure, all of these great colleagues, what, what would you want to give, it, give back to the community that you, know, you came from? What kind of an entrepreneurship that you would want to unleash on them? We can engage on this later uh, because I want to be respectful of everyone else's time. And yeah, I I'm happy to talk to you about it. Unless everyone else wants to hear it too. Oh, so, okay. Um, so I spent, um, like, uh, until I was 18 years old, I was a stateless person. I did not have any legal documentation. I got my birth certificate when I was 16 years old. And um, so, yeah, like I, I did not exist on paper, and this is a situation that a quarter million Tibetan refugees face too. And so for me, um, legal documentation is super important. That's like my top priority because that is the pathway to any kind of security and safety. And so that would be my contribution in that I would want to use this digital space and um, all these tools to um, create a secure pathway to a future. Thank you all very much for engaging with us on this important project.